Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to you to this uh, Masterpiece London panel on sculpture in and of our times. My name is Farah Nayeri. I'm a New York Times writer on culture, and I'm also the author of a book called Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age, which I've had the audacity. No, please don't. Please don't. Please put it. Please put it down. It really is. Please. No, no, no. I mean, this is not about the book. <laughs> It's about these artists uh, and these panelists, but um, I have a few copies just in case anyone was interested. I'm also the host of a, a podcast called Culture Blast, um, which uh, interviews prominent artists of our time in each show. I've had interviews with Ai Weiwei, Emma Thompson, uh, Nan Golden. Anyway, a sculpture is, of course, our central focus today. And let me begin with a short reminder to all of you as to why it is that sculpture is such an extraordinarily central art form to, to the world, to humanity. Um, if you ask someone who's not an expert to list, you know, the most important or the most famous work of art of all time, they might begin by mentioning the Mona Lisa, of course, but there's also a good chance they will bring up Michelangelo's David or Michelangelo's Pietà which to my mind stands a good chance of winning the medal for the most splendid sculpture of all time, with all due respect to the two sculptors I have sitting next to me here. I hope you'll forgive me <laughs> for having uh, a fondness for Pietà. Uh, I'm probably not alone. But anyway, a lot of art market attention nowadays when you flip through your screens and your um, you know, headlines in the morning or in the afternoon, it goes to painting, uh, figurative paintings by young up-and-coming artists are the rage right now uh, on the art market. And um, at first glance, painting might seem to hog the spotlight a little bit compared to sculpture. But if you think about it, sculpture is a much bigger part of people's everyday and public lives than painting is. It's a much bigger part of your everyday life, your everyday routine. When you walk to work, when you walk back home from work or from anywhere else, chances are you will be walking past public sculptures. You will be having one in your garden square, or you might have, be walking past Trafalgar Square or any other square. And there will be statues there and sculptures, and you may pay attention to them or you may not, but they're there. And so... Um, there's also an empty fourth plinth on Trafalgar Square that gets regularly occupied by sculpture and people vote on it. People care about it. People have their say. So if you think about it, sculpture has a much bigger role in your everyday public life than painting does. I mean, no one's going to hang a painting in Trafalgar Square, right? What would be left of it in the weather in London? Um, in your everyday surroundings, Again, you know, you will be seeing so many sculptures. And um, if you want to see paintings, you have to go indoors. You have to go into a museum. You have to go into, uh, visit a private collection, visit a commercial gallery, uh, someone's home. So the medium that my panelists work in uh, is an absolutely essential and fundamental medium. Um, let me take a small interruption and, and make just one housekeeping request. If you could put away your mobile phones, unless you're filming the talk, if you could please keep them put away because it, it is distracting to people sitting next to you and to the panel. I see a lady still. Okay, thank you. Um, sculptures matter so much that every once in a while, an angry member of the public will vandalize one. If you just think of recent examples, the Edward Colston statue in Bristol, which ended up, of course, tipped over, tumbled, toppled, and tossed into the water. If you think of the Carl Andre bricks at Tate um, many years ago, where someone just said, what is this? It's just a pile of bricks. This is a, you know, uh, really a scandal. Why is this in Tate? And poured ink all over him. Um, if you think of the Anish Kapoor sculptures at Versailles, which got vandalized quite heavily, and inscribed with anti-Semitic slogans which the artist has chosen to keep. If you think of the inflatable Paul McCarthy Christmas tree, which was reminiscent of a sex toy and got deflated in Paris and taken down by the artist. The list is long, and I have a whole chapter devoted to sculpture and it, 
you know, the, the vandalizing of it in this book. But the main reason I'm bringing that up is because people care about sculpture. Sculpture matters to them and they react to it very, very crucially. Now, we are here today with a prominent curator of sculpture, Melanie Vandenbroek of the V&A. Thank you, Melanie, for being here. And we are also here with two fantastic sculptors who have works here at Masterpiece that you can see. So we have Patrick Hurst sitting right next to me here. Uh, his steel work, the steel um, balls that are um, in, a, in, a, in a formation, uh, they stand right outside the, this tent. And so I would invite you to go and look at them. It's very attractive, extremely um, gleaming steel um, structure by Patrick. And then we have Angela, Angela Palmer here. She has a few works at the fair, most notably a sculpture of the human brain uh, that was commissioned for the film adaptation of the Robert Harris novel, The Fear Index. You will find it near Le Caprice. I went looking for it the other day and looking for a little, you know, kind of indicator uh, to help others go and see it. It's also very beautiful. Um, Melanie, let's start with you. You have kind of curated the whole sculpture series that we see running down the central aisles of Masterpiece this year. And I just wanted to know how you came up with that selection. It's a very in intelligent, clever selection, very varied. How did you come up with, you know, what you're going to show there? I'm really glad you, uh, you think so. Thank you very much. Um, I, I have some slides I can show if it, if it helps to visualize them. Yes. Um, but the Masterpiece Sculpture Series is a, a new initiative by Masterpiece in which they invite uh, an external curator to curate the selection of sculptures that is shown outside the booths of the exhibitors. The first curator of the series was Joe Baring in 2019, uh, curator of the Ingram Collection, a really prominent uh, curator of, of modern contemporary sculpture. So it was quite a um, tremendous boot for me to fill uh, this year. And the idea is to invite all the exhibitors to make suggestions as to which sculptures might look extraordinary in those spaces and then to select from them. So as you can imagine, it's quite difficult to make yeah. a selection that kind of hangs together, as it were, sits together, and, and finding something that kind of links them and, and that, um, that, Let, that... Let's see what you've got Yes. Here. So I think... Oh, I'm not sure this is working. Let's have a look. Okay, maybe we there can There we are. Oh, fantastic. Um, oh, look at that. I think I when see, I... I saw those, yeah. When fantastic. I started uh, working on the selection was in January or February this year. And uh, it, it was... It was quite a tumultuous moment, you know, every time you read the news, it was all about the climate crisis. Uh, obviously, there was the invasion of uh, Ukraine happening at the same time. And I felt quite glum and quite um, just depressed about it all. And I, it, it really struck me how sculpture, particularly sculpture of the human body, sculpture of our time. So when you have artists who are really responding to the world in which they live, not only are they uh, kind of great witnesses of these times, but they can also remind you about the human condition, what it means to be alive, what it means to be a human being in society. How do you uh, interrogate the society in which you live? How, uh, you know, they ask provocative questions. They make you think. And I think sculpture is, is a very powerful powerful medium because it's a medium that shares a space with us. We yeah, we will be discussing the merits of sculpture exactly. later, but I would want you to kind of comment yeah. a little on, the, on what we see here. So what I wanted to select was a sculpture that was really highlighting a plurality of voices, yeah. plurality of perspectives, plurality of, uh, you know, really kind of foregrounding uh, a, a multiplicity of practices, both from the point of view of, of heritage, but also from the point of view of uh, the porosity between art forms. And this is really something that I keep going back to in my career, that porosity which both your works shows 
remarkably. The porosity between art forms, meaning between painting and sculpture and Could other be between painting and sculpture, or... could be between, you know, paint, the collision between art and science, as in the case of Angela, or um, the, the way in which you took literature as your starting point, Patrick. Or in the case here on screen, the mm. figure on the left is, is uh, one figure from a much wider series by Zach Ove from 2016, in which the Trinidadian British artist took as his starting point a small wooden statuette given by his dad uh, to him in the 1970s, which came from, uh, I think, Senegal. Um, but he also took as a second starting point two works of literature, one of them being Mas um, Ben Jonson's Mask of Blackness from uh, 1605, in which Ben Jonson wrote uh, a mask for the court of Britain to perform in blackface. Um, so you had Anne of Denmark, Queen of England, with 11 of her court together playing black maidens who were coming to uh, meet the King of England, James I, to get their uh, complexion whitened. So really quite extraordinary early example of institutional racism and that idea that white is beautiful and black mm -hmm. shouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. be seen. So extremely powerful kind of point of departure yeah, and, as, and so as this is a sculpture that I, I saw but it is really it's it's in the central aisle it's, it's a very first object you see as you come in one. and to me it was very deliberate because this this figure is kind of telling you to stand for attention yeah. to mm -hmm. you know think to invite you to think in a sophisticated way about what you are looking at and why you are looking at it and what sculpture is doing and why it is doing it. So the, the first point of departure was the Mask of Blackness. The second point of departure was Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man from 1952, which is this pioneering work of American literature, which really talks about the social invisibility in which the main protagonist, a black man, is being plunged. And to me, I really wanted to foreground this, the fact that Sculpture is a medium that is universal, but perhaps in the global north we tend to see a lot of work by white artists being foregrounded and less so by artists with a plurality of yeah. heritage like Zach. Can we, can we see some more or can Sorry, you speak I, about a few more because we need to get to... I apologise. Yeah. Um, the second work on the right is a work by Bill Turnbull whose uh, centenary it is this year and a very important monograph was mm -hmm. just published uh, yesterday. Um, and what I really wanted to foreground with both Zach's and, and Bill Turnbull's work was a way in which contemporary artists, even those that might be really pushing the kind of limits of their medium and they might be f making you think in a very contemporary way, and in the case of Bill Turnbull, pushing the limits of abstractions, they are also working within a tradition and speaking to the past. And in the case of Turnbull, you have this, you look at this extraordinary female figure and it makes you think of Neolithic sculpture, it makes you think of cyclidic sculpture, it makes you think of, um, you know, really ancestral monuments. Yeah, let's, let's go through the others a bit quicker because we need to get to speak to the artists. I will just waste through. So this oh, is yes, work by Cathy Pilkington. There is a sculpture of, uh, of these animals, which yes. is absolutely darling, yeah. What Cathy Pilkington is reminding us is that sculpture is also for the domestic realm. You spoke very eloquently about the ways in which we see sculpture around us all the time, yeah. whether it is in the public square or in the museum, but sculpture is also a domestic medium. Um, and also she says this with, with a certain element of levity here and a, a kind of tenderness. You know, it's, it's a very tactile medium as well. It's a medium that is uh, very human in its kind of scale. And um, I felt extremely fortunate that we were able to yeah. This is a detail, work. so there's quite a, a like this a is one of three pieces. Of a few pets. It's an yes. ensemble of pets, yes. including a dachshund. Yes, I used to have one, so I found that really endearing. I'm really, yeah. really fond of. Yeah, her. it's a really like a very nice, nice surprise in the middle like, of a masterpiece. And Kathy is an extremely important British artist, okay. an extremely important sculptor, and it's reminding you that sculpture is not a male medium. We tend to see it as a male medium. It is not a male medium. <laughs> so, okay. um, yeah. and finally, just again talking about positive disciplines, yes. I wanted to think about the other elephant in the room, which is a climate crisis 
which is um, the kind of hyper-consumerism in which our society is, is, you know, is working, in the way in which we think uh, very much in the short term. And some of the sculptures, most sculpture actually, is inviting us to think in the long term, to think um, about uh, timelessness, to think about duration, to think about work that will stay and stand the... the, the uh, test of time. These two works, one of them by Andrew Miller is uh, using salvaged objects and kind of making you think about everyday objects in a much more kind of poetic and different way. It's, it's just extraordinarily poetic. Um, and I invite you to, to go and, and revel in its beauty when, when you go through the fair. And the one on the right is by Eleanor Lakelin, who uses sustainably sourced wood to make those extraordinary pieces which speak to millennia of human culture and human tradition, but also makes us think about wood as a very organic material and of the trees as objects that have had a life, that have gone through suffering and disease and decay. In, and and um, in uh, illness in the same way as us human beings okay, do. Okay, great. Thank you for that um, introduction to your sculpture series, which everyone um, will see if they go walking around the fair. The sculptures are everywhere. If you could pass the clicker on to Patrick, because um, um, I'm going to ask Patrick, uh, who has this wonderful work of steel balls outside uh, the main entrance to this fair. Patrick, tell us a little bit about um, that steel work, but also more, more broadly, yeah. Show us a little bit about your work and, and, and why you do what you do, why you've chosen this medium. Uh, in terms of sculpture, just generally as a medium, I, I tried going and doing other things, but I was, I was never able to get myself to, to stay on them. There's something about... Like, what did you try? I tried painting, I tried printmaking, I, I, can, I can draw, I can do a lot of the traditional processes. It, yeah. was, it was just a bit, yeah, okay, that's, that's that, that's, that's accurate. But it's sculptures, the thing that, being able to actually hold something and make yeah. something that occupies the same space uh, as, yeah. as a person is a very different, it's a very different thing than, for, for me, uh, mm -hmm. over painting. And uh, you live in Rome, so you're surrounded by Bernini. And the, I used to live in Rome. I'm complete uh, not nuts about Rome. Oh, and, it, uh, it's everywhere. You, yeah. you, you, you know, you, you walk into some square, and it's like, oh, I know, I, I know that. That's uh -huh. that's that's in my art books. Yeah. So yeah. And so that somehow does that kind of inspire or inform what you do? Do you think? Uh, I think, I think it's. We've, with that, it's much more that sculpture is something that's been integral. Everyone's wanted to been able to represent something on, on a different scale. We all use drawing and other stuff to, to get an idea of stuff, an idea of uh, painting to get an idea of how we may want to perceive something. But ultimately, we want a sculpture because, as you were saying earlier, mm -hmm. people fundamentally care. And that's your child agreeing with you. That, that is my child, yeah. <laughs> he, he's... He, come, he, he comes to the studio quite frequently. There's a future sculptor right there. Oh, yeah. I've, fingers crossed. <laughs> Absolutely agreeing with you. Ah. Ah. <laughs> so... Don't uh, go. Ah, he'll kick off. He will. Um, yeah, so yeah. The, the Steel Spheres, uh, they're from a series called... Uh, well, from my water series, so it's come in several iterations, several different compositions, but the, it's an abstract representation of waters, uh, bubbles rising in water. Oh, isn't that lovely? And the title came from uh, a speech in later book by Dave, the, uh, the, write, the American writer David Foster Wallace. Oh, yeah. So he, he likens reality to fish swimming in water and older fish and to younger fish are swimming by. And, and what's the scale of this? Uh, that particular piece is a meter ninety. A meter ninety, so yeah, yeah uh, like the, the, the piece outside. Very tall they're smaller. <laughs> there, there are some smaller. You do smaller. You did tell yeah. me that you like to keep the scale more. I, kind of I like to keep the scale relative to the person, so it depends on the on the nature of the object. Can you show us other stuff you've got here? Yeah, certainly. If the clicker works. There we go. There we go. So that looks like, you know, kind of dumbbells or something. Ah, is it dumbbells? <laughs> I mean, Sorry. it is definitely heavy. I can tell you that much. It's, it's, How it's a big foot, is that? I mean, that's, that's about a foot by, it's about yay big, and it, it weighs probably 100 kilos. 
Yeah, yeah it's a so, bit of a heavy dumbbell. Uh, yeah, that was a uh, that was, was an interesting piece to make. Yeah, it maybe could, Schwarzenegger could have. Yeah, yeah. Very Sorry, beautiful. it is a very very attractive. So yeah. that that's something that would fit on a like would be on a tabletop. A strong table. As a, a strong table. A strong tabletop. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, th th this was uh, in a lot of works. I tried to find something which is finds a unifying quality, something in the human condition that we can all connect to. In this, it's absolutely lovely. Uh, and I mean, how long did these take to, to make? Because I was just um, interviewing Jeff Koons in a talk somewhere in, in Greece, and yeah. you know, his stuff, to get it so shiny, takes a long time. I oh, would imagine yours oh too. Oh, God, yeah, it takes, it takes, it takes a, a long time. Yeah, it's, it's a real process. Uh, how long does it take to create the sculpture? Well, this particular piece, um, uh, I use uh, CNC machining, so I actually work with an engineering company to, to produce this because obviously I don't have a three-quarters of a million pound CNC lathe in my studio, so right. I, I get a guy to do it. Yeah. And um, so they have the ability to do this, so I produce the CAD, I produce all the technical stuff, the, the stuff that I send off to these manufacturers, and you know, I send an email and with a, with yeah, a, with sure. a file. Yeah, I mean, sure, the whole returns. process takes... It can take it, it months, typically. Months. Yeah, yeah. months. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a very, um, very, very yeah. attractive. And uh, uh, just a reminder that you're uh, represented by the Long Sharp Gallery. Have, yeah. They have a wonderful booth here. Oh, they do. Yeah. They do. Uh, and so here's some more work by yeah. you. Yeah. So this is uh, this is one that was done by 3D printing. So a very. Which one? The one on the left or the one on the right? Both. Well, the one on the right is, starts as the one on the left. Oh, I see. Okay, so, so that's the process. So, yeah, because okay. 3D, 3D printing is a wonderful thing that oh. uh, sculptors these days are really using all sorts of disciplines, all sorts of areas that are beyond sculpture, beyond traditional processes. And this, you can 3D print in anything from plastic to materials that dissolve to food to And this to is metal. a standing... This is a... Yeah, it comes the, up to about here? It uh, comes oh. up to... This, that's about six foot as well. Six foot as well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like Very to do. Nice. I like to do stuff on a on a scale to. to do people. you have Italian collectors who are you know, or are your collectors more all over the world? Uh, the Italians have a propensity more for Bernini and Bernini, more, uh, more, a more classical <laughs> classical aesthetic. If they can afford a Bernini, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah if, if, the museum, if the museums will let them, great. Let them have them. Um, oh. Yeah, I mean, um, are, do you have any? more for us to see or should I pass on they, to They Angela? are my slides. Angela, it's, um, it's very nice to be speaking to you here today. Um, you have a few works at the fair, including a sculpture of the human brain, which I invite you to go see. Because it looks, you know, at first as I walked up to it, it looked like a bunch of, like, wire. But then actually you see it's like these, these sheets of glass that have been etched, right? Engraved engraved these sheets of glass that have been engraved and like there's a whole stack of them and when you look at from a distance you will see a brain but they're actually each you know i mean that's very clever <laughs> uh, well um perhaps uh, can i just explain how this technique of course it's a technique i adapted please um when i was at the ruskin school of drawing and fine art in in oxford it was a second career for me and i went as a mature student and part of being at the Ruskin is you go to the um, human anatomy schools at Oxford University, uh, the medical schools, and when the, the medics leave, us artists come in, students, um, in our white coats, and we get to draw and, uh, and, and, and uh, engrave um, with plates um, the dead bodies, which is quite shocking in the beginning. You, you engrave the dead bodies? Well, we don't engrave them. We take, oh, we sorry. Get, we take plates in. <laughs> We're actually, we're, we're, we're actually um, etching onto, onto plates um, right, right, or, or, or drawing. Um, uh, and it, it's quite shocking in the beginning, but after yeah. a few weeks, um, you, it is a fantastic privilege, I should say, because um, you're studying, it's one of the very few, possibly the only art schools in the world that allows students to do this. Mm. So you really do see the musculature of the, of the human body and, and what makes us move. And it's, um, it's, it's, anatomy is a very important part of the course. And during that period, um, when I was studying there, I took my children um, into the History of Science Museum in Oxford, and I saw in a very dusty corner um, a laboratory model made in the 1940s by Dorothy Hodgkin, who's um, a Nobel Prize winner um, scientist, and she was trying to show in three dimensions the, um, 
the, the penicillin molecule. So she had perspex sheets separated by bolts, right. and she drew with an electron, um, sorry, she, she drew with a thick black pen the um, electron density lines of, the, of, the, of these molecules. And I thought, if I could turn, the, if, if, if I could took details of the human head, slices through the human head, but turned it on a vertical plane, would I then be able to show, as she had done in three dimensions, a form? Um, so I went back to my tutors, and they said, well, we can't give you slices of the human head, um, but why don't you go um, to the John Radcliffe in Oxford and get yourself scanned? So this is how this whole thing started. This is your brain. So this is not my brain, oh. but um, I have done my brain on many occasions, and I'll Who's tell you, I'll tell you exactly this? why this is not my brain. Okay. Because this brain, yeah. um, I would never, ever be able to do a brain this size, um, norm, this is a thousand times more detailed oh. from MRIs than any MRI machine um, in the world, and Harvard Medical School have got it. So they took a human brain um, and they put it into scanner for a hundred hours using this Tesla Seven wow. um, MRI scanner. A hundred hours. So I mean, I've, I have been in the scanner a couple of times, um, and. You will see a self-portrait of mine if you go to the pangolin stand. Um, and, but, but this one is, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it was so exciting to okay, do this. Okay, so the, the, also the story behind this, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. is that Robert Harris, the novelist, yes. there's an adaptation of his film, yeah. and there's an art gallery scene, and they wanted real art by you for that film. Yes. And that's why you made yes. this, right? Robert Harris... Tell us about that. Ro Robert Harris um, was writing a book called The Fear Index, and um, the, the main character develops a machine based on artificial intelligence. And he's a hedge fund manager, and he thinks he can make billions by developing Vixel, this machine, which, um, w w which interprets human emotion, the fear, in the markets. And, he, and everything goes horribly wrong, like a Frankenstein movie, and he starts to lose his mind. And there's a lot of meditation on the brain in this particular book. But he is, Robert said, I want him married to an artist and I want to base all the artist's work on yours and this kind of technique I, I use. Mm -hmm. So he came up to my house and into my studio in Oxford and basically just stole my identity, fine. Um, <laughs> but, then, but then when the film was being, when the book was being made into a film, he said, I think it's imperative that, um, that you create the works and we have some of your works for this central scene which is set in a, in a gallery. Did they pay for the, these, these so, commissions? So they paid for the commission, okay, yes. Good. But the deal yeah. was that I could, I could the, the brain remained mine for, for me to sell. So oh. um, hand over to Pangolin, you have, my, you have this brain. And um, so here it is. And very lucky that, um, that Melanie selected Yeah, it's it. absolutely fantastic. I invite you all, if you want to find it, go to Caprice, the restaurant in here. And then it will be somewhere in that near in the vicinity. Look for look for the brain, and Angela. It's also kind of fascinating, but we can come back to that because I wanted to open the open this to questions if there are any. Otherwise, we can continue. But it would be nice to bring the audience in. We have 25 more minutes uh, of this session, and so anytime you have a question, just raise your hand, and we will call on you. Um, you're most welcome. Um, Angela, the, the, the thing that intrigued me is that you uh, used to do what I do, uh, well, at a much higher level. No, you were, no. well, oh yeah, you were um, editor of the Observer magazine and then you were editor of Elle magazine. Uh, so yes, you used to, you, you were at the very top of the journalism business. I was a hack indeed um, before, yeah. before branching. Uh, yeah, we went to live in Hong Kong and I, I sort of had a change of career. But I had gone to art school in Edinburgh um, okay. after I left school and I dropped out after a year and um, my mother sort of got me by the ear and said you will get a job and she intercepted a letter when I was at school I'd edited once only the school magazine and she intercepted a letter from the Scotsman publications because I'd written to them when I was at school saying I'd like to be a journalist when I grow up mm. and she said you will go for that interview and they were so, and, and, and they, they were very concerned. They said, well, actually, we've decided to give it to two people because we're not sure about you. But anyway, as soon as I got there, I was working with, with, with people that were so frightening. I did as I was told. And, um, and I ended up going to, to London to work um, for the uh, 
Daily Telegraph and then The Times and then I was um, home news editor on The Observer and then magazine editor of The Observer, then L. And then I got married and went to live in Hong Kong, came back here and uh, to, to England and um, applied to the Ruskin to um, finish off that degree that I dropped out of. But so art, art had a, a stronger pull than journalism. Yeah, I, but, 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 but it's all about stories. So I, yeah. I, I don't think that they're separate because when I went to art school in, at the Ruskin, this tutor said to me, you need to unlearn everything. Mm. And he, I think he was so wrong. I think he, he was, was so wrong. Yeah, yeah, because actually you bring your background, your, your yeah, everything that you've true. learned. Yeah. And, I, and I think my work is very much about um, stories. If I could just very, very quickly show you... Um, okay. Um, if that's if it's you need to press hard, yeah. That, oh my oh, God, it's gone. Not too, too quick. hard. I've gone too far. That's the coronavirus. So that's um, just yeah. what I was doing um, during um, lockdown. Not, not an image dear to our heart. I mean, nothing against you. You <laughs> know, no, 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 you're, no, no, you're but, grinning at it. But, no, but it's so beautiful. It is beautiful. That, yeah. This is what was so extraordinary because I didn't have that slatted base made when I was doing this, and it just was just like a couple of dots, if you can imagine it, on different sheets of glass. So I didn't know what it was going to look like until. So this is also of sheets of glass. That so that's sheets of glass. It's 28 sheets of glass. And um, is this available to see at the fair? Is it on the Pangolin stand or no? No, the Science Museum in London um, bought it. So uh -huh. you'll be able to see it um, in, 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 in London. It's going to be on show there for two years from November. And then it's going on a tour. And, and what was interesting, if I could Gosh. just very quickly show you, that's it from the side yeah. view. So what is Those are all the sheets of glass. Yeah, but it disappears. And it's just mm. mimicking yeah. the behavior of the virus mm. but you do see it trapped and I think a lot of people felt it, it gave you kind of agency because there it is trapped like it's held hostage and it's kind of isolated and solitary just the behavior imposed on humankind it does look like the sun also it has a kind of glow yeah, it's, it's like mm. a, yeah. it's like a planet but it but I think the, the thing is that um I don't know, Sarah Gilbert, who developed the um, AstraZeneca vaccine, came to unveil it at the, it was in Oxford at the, at the um, Natural History Museum. And she said, I'm really nervous about being confronted by this thing because this is what I've been fighting and fighting for so many yes. months. Mm -hmm. And um, when she saw it, she just said, it's a paradox because it is really quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it is... So this has already been acquired, but... Um, so this has been I was acquired. just wondering, before uh, we go to the audience or back to Melanie, if you guys could tell me, sort of give a ballpark idea of what kind of price range uh, your works are in. No, Polly would kill me if I started to discuss oh, money. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. But, yeah, same thing with you? Same. All right. Okay. <laughs> You'll have to go to the, the, the Pangolin and to the... Long Sharp Gallery. Long Sharp Galleries to inquire about prices. Yeah. Um, mm. So, yes, do we have questions from the audience? Yes, please, Roberto. Hi, I do. Have a question around process. Um, microphone. Hi. Hello. Hi. Um, I had a question around process as, as artists. Do you find between the theory and the practice that the process has to adapt to you, or do you adapt to the process and the sequence of trying to realize what you're trying to realize? And the second part of the question is, do you have any serendipitous discoveries to share that you've realized in the sequence of the Let's process? Let's get you talking on uh, answering that one. I mean, both of you, but you uh, first. Uh, I would say that, I'd say you'd work in, in my case, you work with the process because you, you understand the the way you may the material may behave. I always say that because I primarily work in metal, but for me, metal has a lot of characters. It's it's not just like a fixed, permanent. This is metal. It is always that for me because I have to bend it and melt it and do all sorts of stuff with it. I I have a very different relationship to the material than other people will. Uh, understanding the stages that go into any process. If, if you saw how that sculpture, the, the spheres outside started, you would not believe that they will become how they become. It's the, the, mm. it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And I, I always have characters for, for, for metal. I mean, stainless is fickle. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't like you fickle. doing, yeah, it doesn't like you doing almost anything to it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like a little spoiled child, but you have mm. to encourage it on. But if you can make it do it, it can do wonderful things. Absolutely. So I, I would say that my process adapts to adapts to the material, adapts to certain aspects of the process. Mm. And, 
Mm. Angela, what about you? Yeah, well, I would just use whatever I can to make the idea work, and it's a lot of experimentation, and there's a lot of failures along the way, but failure is so important, um, I think, in, in, in art, in, in, in anything you do in life. Um, there's, been, there's been so much stuff that's gone horribly wrong and has had to be junked, and um, sometimes I have dreams, and then I wake up and think, I've got to do this. Oh, really? Mm. And what kind of other materials do you work in? It's not just glass, obviously. No, it's not just glass. Um, I, I, um, <coughs> right now, um, I'm working on a, on a big project, which is the geological spine of Great Britain, uh, an, a, an exhibition around the geological spine of Great Britain, um, but looking at the kind of Anthropocene. And I've been, I've been looking at all the geological periods of the country because what I'm interested in really is mapping and peeling back the layers to show what is hidden underneath. And um, so I started off with three billion year old rock from Scotland, and you will never find rock in any, anywhere else in this country as ancient as Scotland, because I don't know if you knew this, but Scotland and England were separated. We started off down by the Antarctic Circle, and as the tectonic plates shifted, um, the Iapetus Ocean, which separated England and Scotland, closed seven and a half thousand meters, um, sorry, kilometers wide. And as it closed, we, we were stitched together just south of the equator. And that's called the Iapetus Suture, and it's just almost where Hadrian's Wall is. So I'm working on this, and I really want to show rocks from every every country, and um, I'm planning on, on, on doing a, a sort of cube right. um, where you <coughs> interlock the rocks, so possibly Portland from England and um, Lewisian Nice from Scotland and mm -hmm. Slate and, um, from, from Wales and Basalt from Northern Ireland, yeah. and then perhaps create a tower showing in every geological period in beautiful beautiful rock, but I will need the CNC machines, no doubt, and all yes. sorts of processes. Yeah. Suddenly. Oh, we look forward to that. Yeah, so, so the processes, it's whatever makes, whatever makes, can visualise, yeah. you know, we'll, yeah. we'll realise your, 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 your visualisation. Yeah, Let, let's broaden it a bit um, and go back to Melanie. So Melanie, you are the curator of sculpture at uh, the V&A, a uh, very important position to be in. So you're also in a very good position to answer the question, why is sculpture important? And this is a very important question. It is. First of all, I'm a curator of sculpture. I have colleagues. A curator. A curator of sculpture. Which, which segment do you look after? Uh, 1900 to the present, which, okay. you know, in many ways is, is, is perhaps one of the most exciting yeah. because it's, yeah. it's a here and now. And, yeah. and, uh, and the period from 1900 to the present is the one in which so much has happened in such a quick succession. And it's very much when the Anthropocene really comes to... Mm the worst of it mm. and the best of it mm. as well. And I think what's extraordinary about sculpture, like any form of art, is, mm -hmm. is to a large extent about making sense about who we are mm -hmm. and our place in the world and our place in society. I used to work at the uh, Royal Museum's Greenwich in, in Greenwich. And I worked on art and science, and a colleague in my, uh, of mine and I used to, to work quite closely together. It was an astronomer. Mm -hmm. And we used to say that science and art are about the same thing. It's about making sense of our place in the world and in the universe. And in that, your work was so powerful when I first came across it. So I think art as a whole, this is what it's about, really. It's about us. Um, but sculpture, as I was saying earlier, we share a space with sculpture. We inhabit space together. There's a kind of three-dimensionality of it that, that, in a sense, is easier to comprehend for us because we don't, we don't really think in two dimensions. We don't really think in the flat. I mean, I love painting, don't get me wrong. But I think that there's, there's a kind of you know, goosebump-inducing kind of spine-raising element to sculpture if it's good sculpture. Mm. Um, but also, there's something about the tactility of sculpture. Mm. And touch is the very first sense we develop in the womb. And I think this is why sculpture feels so close to us. Touch is the first sense. First, it, touch is the first sense we develop in the womb, yes. Which, you know, 
I've learned that from scientists, <laughs> not, uh, well, not we from... we could have asked your child, but they're no longer here. <laughs> uh, no. What, was, what was your first sentence? And actually, children love so much free touch. Yeah. You know, mm. this is very much because in the first weeks mm. of their lives, they, they don't really see much, they don't hear in the same way we hear. So it all comes through touch and the touch within the womb. And so I think in that sense, this is why we have such a kind of visceral relationship to sculpture. If the sculpture is good. Mm. I think if sculpture is not good, it becomes invisible. Yeah, mm. yeah and also the question of, um, you know, you are a curator of 19, sculpture from 1900 to the present, and I wondered how the role of sculpture has changed. Do you know, how the role of sculpture today is different from what it was, because in the 19th century, let's face it, um, or before, you know, we'd have people like Edward Colston getting their statues all over Bristol. You know, sculpture had this sort of commemorative, oh yes, let's make a sculpture of Melanie. Melanie would sit and there Melanie would be a sculpture. Well. And mainly, and Melanie, because Melanie did well, and mainly it wasn't a Melanie, it was mainly a Marvin, because no. it was a male of no. the species who would be commemorated. Exactly. Not many sculptures of a women. Sir Marvin at that. Except Queen Victoria and stuff, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like women were far, few and far between, among makers and among objects or subjects. But so nowadays, how has the role of sculpture, I mean, how has sculpture, you know, changed? I... I think sculptors, I mean artists and sculptors today are very much citizens of the world because they are no longer exclusively bound to commissions. I mean, for sculptures, commissions are very important um, because there's, there's an apparatus, there's a cost, there's, there's, a, there's a system required to make um, various kinds of sculpture in which you know, the kind of materials, the techniques, the medium, the, the studio you have behind you will be different from, you know, someone just painting on canvas, for instance. I'm very crudely exaggerating here, just, just for impact. Um, but I, I think artists who do matter, artists whom we notice, artists whose work makes a stand to attention, are by and large citizens of the world. And they're making important and interesting commentaries about the world. And this is... The, the sculpture series this year, I, was, I really wanted to emphasize this, the fact that these individuals, with their own kind of visceral experience, because if you're a sculptor, you, you've got that kind of visceral kind of connection with the material and with space, they make us think about the society we live in. They make us think about the societies that's underpinning, or the histories that underpin the society we live in. Mm. They make us, they, they, um, they help us being self-reflective about the past. And to me, what is most important at the moment when we are facing a climate crisis, a crisis like humanity has never faced before, I think sculpture can invite us to be good ancestors, to be thinking into the future, because sculpture tends to be a material which, is, um, which, which lasts, mm. you know, tends to be in, in media, you know, whether it's stone or whether it's um, metal or, or indeed edged glass, that uh, will not degrade quickly, as it were. And again, I'm, I'm brutally um, uh, simplifying matters here because sculpture yeah. exists in a great variety of media. Mm -hmm. um, but sculpture can invite us to think about the impact that we have today, our lives have today, our every decision have today on several, se several generations ahead. And sculpture, I think, can help us think about how to solve the great problems of our time. Any more questions? We still have 10 minutes, and this is really uh, only as good as you make it. So um, it'd be really great to hear from you and find out what you're curious about. Please, don't be shy. You're not on national television. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. And if you could introduce yourself. I forgot to introduce Roberto Nieves. He's, I think, head of events at Time magazine. Yeah. Please. Hi, I'm Paige, just a visiting tourist. Um, Patrick, I was wondering if you started working with materials with your hands, or was, was it always just a concept that was realised in a constructionist way? In terms of when I started making sculpture, or just sculpture. forever? Sculpture. No. <laughs> uh, with the... I did start... I mean, to be honest, I make a lot of these things uh, in, in CAD design, so I actually... because being a sculptor, trying to model things on a small scale, it takes up a lot of material, it takes a lot, up a lot of time, and it's quite slow to come to, come to ideas. So if you, if you can make something in, on a computer in, in software, I can 
I can make one thing. I'm not quite sure I like that. Flip one thing around, I can move things around, and then I can set them into environments, and I can see, okay, that works. I, seem, I think that works. Next step, make it, make it in some measure of real life, and I use a lot of 3D printing as well, either to help me make things specifically or to, to prototype, um, uh, prototype ideas. So, and also... When it comes to making something big, just the cost that comes into it, it's prohibitive for me to experiment at, at scale. So it's, it's always very important to, yeah, to, to start in these smaller scales. And that, that's one, one thing that's been happening with all the developments in CAD design, CAD, CAD manufacture from CNC machining, from 3D printing, from CAD modeling, is that someone, someone like me can develop a massive amount of ideas in all sorts of materials and mediums because... If I can make a computer model, I could speak to uh, a stone carvers and say, "Could you could you make that?" And I can I could might be difficult, but realize this in stone. I could realize this in resin, in plastic. I could realize it in a massive range of materials, all from sending one file. And also in terms of the the um, environmental issues, uh, climate change that we're having at the moment, if I can send a file. It's, it's a lot more economical, it's a lot more sure. environmentally friendly yeah. ju ju just doing that and then you have a back and forth between, between that and then they can print and they can prototype based on it as well. Yeah. Um, it's, right. yeah, it's definitely... It's I want to go back to Angela and ask the question I asked of Melanie. Um, why sculpture is important to you and, and, and um, can you describe sculpture to us? Um, well... Yeah, sculpture just seemed to suit my what I was trying to visually uh, realise. Um, and I've been thinking about it quite a lot over the years. And I think that the brain, going back to the brain, actually does respond and engage with three dimensions. We are in a three-dimensional world. And I, I know that, that you, know, you can take a, a painting and a lot of um, artists, starting you know, from the, the black square onwards, um, will in 1917 or whatever, we'll, we'll try and um, create an illusion of the, the three dimensions for us. But really, I think that if we see something in three dimensions, there is that immediate and engagement. And as you were saying, it can be very visceral. Mm. We're, the, we're, the best kind of, um, we're the best kind of sculpture. And it's interesting how um, in lockdown, so many people who were used to meeting each other in the flesh and then had to um, start having all those online meetings, it developed that what people call cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. whereby you'd spend hours in like team meetings or Zoom yeah. meetings and yeah. you'd feel extremely exhausted. Mm -hmm. And it's because your brain is trained to see things in three dimensions and to see another human being on screen yeah. and interact with that human being on screen really messes with your brain. Yes, yes. There's this constant two dimensions that we're looking mm. at. Yeah, mm. I think it's... We have time for one final question, if there is one. Yes, please. If you could um, introduce I yourself. Also. Yes, thank you. I am Philippe Roland. I'm from Belgium. I happen to visit this fair. I would like to ask you, you have rightly pointed the fact that um, sculpture is everywhere in the public space, mm. but that you see, uh, but I would, I would personally think also it's very, painting is very present in the private sphere. There are so many paintings at home and so on. But as a whole, I have noticed that there's much more interest for uh, paintings than for sculpture. And I would like to know what, what, what is the reason? Because in my mind, a sculpture is as enticing and attractive than a painting can be. But maybe I was thinking it's because of the, the abstract concepts which are behind it. It's harder for the general public to understand. That was my question. Yeah, okay. I mean, um, do you want to take a stab at that? Um... Uh, in, the private, in the private sphere with sculpture, it's, it's not as easy to... It's not as easy to get there. It's not as easy because a painting you put on your wall. You know, you draw some holes, you set a thing, you put it on a wall. Sculpture, you have to have a team of people come in with a crate. If it's heavy, you may have to bring lifting equipment. It's, it's, it's. I think the logistics of sculpture is one thing that uh, pulls people, collectors back or right. private individuals back from from having sculpture, particularly if they want it at scale. So if they want a piece outdoors, then. Yeah, they don't want to ruin their garden in the process. They don't want to do these things. If they want it indoors, you've got to make sure you've got a door big enough. There's, there's yeah. all sorts of 
practical and plinth, and then as you were saying, can you your floor take it? Can your table take it? Yeah, one, even one yeah. of your yeah, exactly, even a tabletop. Yeah, a <laughs> hundred kilos. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah. the thing. So the, I guess there is the kind of. I, I don't think it's a lack of appetite for it. I think mm -hmm. I, I think there there is an appetite for it. It's just it, it's a. Uh, there's difficulties associated with it that because it can be all sorts of things it could be weight it could be stone metal and then you get some people that use some artists that use more difficult to maintain pieces so mm. yeah there's no um, lack of desire we do have a couple more minutes uh, can i just add to yes, what you were just saying i mean there's a very simple matter which is affordability mm. You know, paintings do tend to be less expensive than sculpture, partly because paintings do tend to not require the same apparatus to be made. You know, a painting, crudely speaking, is uh, a piece of canvas on a stretcher with, crudely speaking, one individual who will be, you know, creating the piece. A sculpture, depending on what type of sculpture you are thinking about and what type of scale, first of all, the primary material might be much more expensive. Canvas is made of cotton or linen, um, you know, marble needs to be picked up in a quarry and so on and so forth. And then quite often sculpture might require assistance and specialists and so on and so forth. So the, the, the affordability is very different. Mm. Could I just pick up very quickly Please, um, something that Melanie was saying earlier about um, how the public engage with um, sculpture, public sculpture. And I think what is exciting about public sculpture, apart from being an open sort of visual history book for us all to share constantly in our lives, is that, is that there is one particular one, for example, um, where I think it lives on in a way, um, and it's on platform one in Paddington Station, and it's a soldier from the First World War, and he's reading um, a letter from home, and it's a very poignant sculpture by um, Charles, Charles Sergeant Jagger, I think. And... And in, in the, he's standing on a plinth. Jagger wanted him to stand at the same height as, um, as everyone else um, on the, the platform, but um, they objected to that because they felt, I, the, the commissioners, I think it was the, um, they, they felt that perhaps it's introducing too much death, that you would, you would be, ex it, it, it would be too gloomy for people. So they put him on this pedestal, but inside the pedestal um, is in the sealed casket the names of all the people from the um, British Rail, um, who, who died, two and a half thousand names mm. in that sealed casket. And then a couple of years ago, the public were asked to write a letter to that soldier. And I love the idea that there is still that engagement yeah. after so many years, that these sculptures live on, in a way. Mm. Yeah, in a way that a painting wouldn't. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. I think that's a very, uh, very lovely note to end on. I wanted to thank... Um, my panel, a lot of talent here up on this podium today, uh, and creativity and intellect. Thank you so much. And uh, and um, just to say, to see the work of Patrick, all you have to do is stand outside the art fair and look at the steel bowls. And um, and do you have also work on the, on, at, on your gallery stand or um, not this year? Not this year. And to see the work of Angela, I invite you to go near Le Caprice to see the brain and to the Pangolin Gallery, P-A-N-G-O-L-I-N, to see her work also on the stand of Pangolin. And, well, for Melanie's work, you have to go to the V&A, I guess. Can I say one thing? Yes, of course. Um, Farah was mentioning Michelangelo's David, and, of course, you have the extraordinary plaster cast of Michelangelo's David at the V&A. So if you can't travel to Florence, you can always see the plaster cast Fantastic. there. Absolutely. And uh, I bring up David in this book, um, which I will shamelessly hold up. Plug, plug away. <laughs> Just take <to> it. <laughs> plug away. Uh, if, if there is interest, I have copies here for, for sale. And, um, and thank you very, very much for, uh, for attending this talk, which I, I did think was very, very rich and uh, covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you.